The news broke over him like a relentless nor'easter. First the raid of his livestock and the slaughter of his field staff at the hands of the Sabaeans. Next the report of the firestorm literally out of heaven that wiped out all of his flocks and his shepherds. Right on the heels of that devastation came the report of three groups of Chaldeans raiding his transportation department and killing all his drivers. And then, final gut punch, a windstorm destroyed the home of his son, and all ten of his children perished in its wreckage. It was as if all his neighbors had turned terrorist, and every nature itself had joined in the assault. Yet in all of this, Job never sinned nor charged God with wrong. While trying to make some sort of sense of it all, he lost his own health. From the top of his head to the soles of his feet, the dear brother was covered with loathsome sores to which no medical treatment could bring relief. With his wife giving up hope and his three supposed friends pontificating mercilessly about hidden sins and divine wrath, our man cries out in anguish and utter despair. How can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him. That we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. And again, in chapter 31, he says, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. I would give him an account of all of my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. Job's distress-fueled question finds its ultimate answer in our book of Hebrews. But between his longing and the fulfillment of his desperate desire, literally hundreds of years and millions of deaths will have occurred. Yet by God's design, there would one day be one who would stand between the offender and the offended, mediating an everlasting covenant of peace. We ended our study last week with the author identifying our great high priest as one who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated, exalted, sinless, sufficient, and eternal. Let's start reading in chapter 7 verse 26. I'm going to read all the way through the 13 verses of chapter 8. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. And you, you sigh a deep sigh of relief. Okay, finally, it's going to start to make some sense. Here's the point. We have a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. 
They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that has been shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is a better covenant since it's enacted on better promises. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day which I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. They did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Now this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the very least of them to the greatest. I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. I want to unpack this chapter when four points that will hopefully tie it together. First of all, let's talk about his position. Secondly, his place. Third, his priority. And finally, his promise. Notice that the author declares that Jesus' position in ministry is to be seated at the Father's right hand. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. That is a theme that has appeared again and again in the book and will continue. Chapter 1, verse 3, after making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And we're going to pick this up in chapter 9 and again in chapter 10. The reality is that no earthly high priest on the day of atonement ever pulled up a chair and sat down because the sacrificial need was never met. There were always more sins, therefore required more offerings. In this case, our high priest has offered the sacrifice for sins, and he sat down because the work is done. Chapter 1, verse 13 says, Sit at my right hand, and I will make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Chapter 8, verse 1, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Again, chapter 10, and verse 12, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. John MacArthur in his commentary on Hebrews says that it seems as though what the author to the Hebrews is saying is that that you have not lost anything by following Christ and leaving the old system of Judaism. And, And the picture that he gives is of the Sanhedrin. When the Sanhedrin would meet for a trial, Paul stood before them in Acts 21. Jesus stood before them in his trial. When they would meet, the judge, the ruling judge, would sit in the middle as the high priest. On his right was the one who would justify the accused. On his left was the one who would indict or bring charges against the accused and the condemnation. What he is saying is, is that when we come into the presence of a holy God, Though we have an accuser of the brother who are constantly bringing our faults and our failures to the attention of a righteous judge, there is seated at his right hand one who is our advocate, our lawyer, who appeals our case continually. 
He is always doing His ministry there. It says in John chapter 3, verse 17, He did not send His Son into the world so that He could condemn the world, but in order that the world through Him might be saved. Or He said in chapter 7, verse 25 of Hebrews, Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. You see, when Jesus appears in the presence of the Father, He sat down because the sacrificial, the atoning work was finished. But the work of the high priest is not yet complete. So there in this perfect sanctuary, He continues to minister and to serve. Notice verse 2. He is a minister in the holy places, in the true tent. Not true because the other one is false, but true in that this is the real tent that the Lord set up and not men. There is a world in this, in, there's a spiritual world there that controls everything that happens in the seeable world here. And there is a place where Jesus dwells with the Father, and there he continues to minister as a high priest, as the mediator, as Job prayed. Could there ever be one who could put his hand on the offended and the offender and bring them to reconciliation? And his answer is, We have such a one. He is in a heavenly sanctuary. Now the point that's being made here is that this is the real tent. The tabernacle in the Old Testament was not the original. It was simply a replica of the other. In Exodus 25 verse 9, God gave Moses instruction on the mountain when he said, let the people make a sanctuary for me that I might dwell in their midst. And then he was very specific. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, so you shall make it. I'm always intrigued by that. Poor Moses. He's, he's, he's an octogenarian now. He's in his 80s. And when they come to Mount Sinai, God calls him up on the mountain, and he goes up on a mountain, and God says, now, I want you to go back down the mountain. I want you to tell the people, don't touch the base of the mountain. If even your animals touch it, they become crispy critters. I want you to come. And then he goes up on a mountain, and God says, now, I want you to go back and warn them again. So he takes an 80-year-old, and he has him go up and down a mountain about three. Finally, he says, come all the way to the top of the mountain. And he spent 40 days with him. And I think it's because of that kind of exercise that Moses actually lived till he was 120 years old. And the point is that God says to an octogenarian, I am going to open up a window into heaven, and I want you to make an exact replica on earth of what you see there. There is a worship place. There is a holy of holies. The tabernacle was that. And according to this, he is a minister in the holy places, that is in the real tent that the Lord set up and not others. But notice the priority of his ministry in verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. His ministry as a high priest is to represent us before a holy God. And on earth they would take gifts and sacrifices. The difference is this. The gifts were grain offerings. They were works or the product of men's labor or hands. They, they were presented. You would bring it spontaneously and uh, voluntarily to the priest as a declaration, one, of your dedication to the holiness of God. Second, perhaps as an act of worship and adoration before Him. Or third, as an expression of gratitude and thanksgiving. We'd bring these gifts to him as a demonstration that we belong to him 
We're depending on Him and we worship Him. But the second thing that they would do is they would bring sacrifices. The sacrifices were not expressions of worship, but they were recognition of failure and sin. They were blood offerings because without the shedding of blood, there can't be the removal of sins. The earthly priest's responsibility was to receive from the people the gifts of worship, adoration, and dedication to God, and also to execute the the shed blood sacrifices to cover the sins of the people. The problem here with this priest is that he continues, Jesus continues to do his ministry, but he only receives the gifts. He no longer offers the sacrifices because simply as we'll pick up in the next two weeks from chapter 9 and chapter 10, he gave the final sacrifice when he gave the life of himself. He has an ongoing ministry on your behalf and mine in heaven. Whenever I do a funeral, and it seems that I do lots of those anymore, I almost always end up sometime in John chapter 14, where he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house are many dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you. And we think in terms of the activity of Jesus today as having spent 2,000 years making a really nice place for us to go and to live with Him. But He's kind of like the construction superintendent of heaven preparing the place. His activity is as a high priest, continuing to receive our offerings of praise, of dedication, of adoration, of commitment, of gratitude. You see, that's why the first 20 minutes of our service are not just walking tunes. But it's actually the corporate expression of our gratitude, our devotion, our adoration. You see, worship is simply declaring the worth of the object adored. That's why it is so important that when we gather together to sing His praises, to adore His name, that we have a proper perspective on who He is. This is why the adversary will stir up conflict in the family van on the way to church so that he can divert our attention or distract us from it. But when you come to grips biblically with who God is and we realize that together we are declaring His worth, good enough is just not good enough. It's what drives us to pursue at all times relentlessly looking for excellence. Because in our worship, we are making a declaration about the God that we adore. Jesus is there receiving our prayers, receiving the hymns of praise, receiving the sacrifices of our adoration. And He deserves the very best. He does it in a better tent. Not the original tent, but this one on earth was a replica of the other. I, I didn't take the time this week to add up the numbers. I'm not sure where, where gold prices and silver prices are. Most of you probably have done your investment there for retirement, so you could tell me. But in 2015, I did the math to figure out how much gold and silver did it take to make the earthly tent, which is nothing but a shadow, a replica of the real thing, 
And when I added the numbers up, I came to over $40 million for a mobile worship center. God says, I want you to go down and ask the people to make a contribution to the establishment of a tabernacle. They have been four generations slaves in Egypt. They are unemployed wanderers in the wilderness. Nobody had three income streams or a side hustle. They simply gave what they had, and they gave over $40 million as a declaration of the worth of their God. He serves in a better place. Notice verse 5, or verse 4, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, Jesus was not a Levite and he was not a descendant of Aaron. He was of the tribe of Judah. In Genesis 49, when Jacob is pronouncing blessing upon his sons, it was on his son Judah that he said, from him will be the crown, he'll be the family of royalty. Jesus was not qualified on earth to be a priest. I thought it was interesting, you read through the Gospels. Jesus was often in the temple vicinity. But never one time did Jesus go into the holy place. He never went all the way behind the veil into the holy of holies. He wasn't qualified to be there. He was, he was restricted to the temple courts like everyone else was because he was of the tribe of Judah. His priesthood is different than the earthly one. He could not qualify by law. But notice verse 5, they, that is the earthly priests, serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. When Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Turn, if you would, to the left in your Bible. Go to the book of Exodus. Notice the construction manager, Moses, does a survey of the project. He comes down, the people have made their contribution. Skillful people have been prepared by God to do the work and the labor. And now he does the inspection. And notice chapter 39, just going to highlight one phrase repeated over and over. Verse 1, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Notice verse 5, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 7, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 21, as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 26, as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 29, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 31, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 32, thus all the work of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting was finished. And the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. Verse 42, his summary report. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded. So they had done. Then Moses blessed them. Jesus' priority was to minister in a better tent, created not by man, and to offer sacrifices or of himself, and then gifts of worship and adoration to God. Verse 6 says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is a better covenant, since it is enacted on better promises. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So the 
the institution of a better covenant is the point. A covenant is kind of an unfamiliar phrase to us unless, of course, you're at a wedding and then you state your vows. A covenant is basically an agreement between two people that always includes promises. We are agreeing together to do the following things. You can hold me to that. The word covenant means to cut. A covenant was basically sealed by the shedding of blood. And so you read in Genesis chapter 15, God makes his first covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and then 25 years later, Abraham is wavering in his confidence, and, and God says to him, he says, as many as the stars of the heaven and the sand of the sea, so shall you be your descendants. And so the aged Abraham believed God, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And then God said, I'm going to cut a covenant with you. And so he told Moses to take specific animals, and to cut them in half, Doc Hughes told us how hard it would be with a bone knife and how tired Abraham must have been at the end of the day. But to cut the animals in half and then create, a, 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 as it were, an alleyway between them, the half of the dead carcass on either side. The way that you would do the covenant is that the two people making the agreement would lace their arms together and together they would walk in that alleyway between the dead carcasses with this commitment. If I break the, my part of this agreement, may my life become as one of the carcasses. In Genesis chapter 15, when it's time for God and Abraham to lock their arms and to walk through, God puts Abraham into a, a trance. He puts him into a heavy sleep. He paralyzes him. And only God walks through. Because this covenant that he was making with Abraham depended on God's faithfulness and not on Abraham's. But that covenant was a conditional covenant. On that covenant, according to the book of Leviticus and other places, is if you do this, then I, God, will do this. And the problem with it is that it wasn't a faulty government. It was just a temporary government. It was provisional. It, it, it was, as we've said before, it was given, the law was given in order to drive us to spiritual insanity. That, that God would say, this is what the people of God look like and live like, and we would do our best to conform to it, and it never worked. We could never measure up to the standard. So he says in Galatians that the law was like a school bus given by God to bring us to the person of Christ. All of those Old Testament types and signs continually pointed to another, and that was to Christ. Therefore, he gives us a better covenant, which he now here quotes from the Old Testament, probably the second longest quote of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Go back, if you would, to the book of Jeremiah. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and find the 31st chapter. The timing of God's declaration of this covenant is most significant. Jeremiah, according to chapter 1, is a PK. His father was the high priest Hilkiah. Josiah had become a teenage king. And not long into his rule, he had decided that the temple of God, the house of God, lying in disrepair, they had perverted it and distorted it. The priests were offering up gods and, or, or sacrifices to false gods and leading the people into idolatry, and the temple was in total disarray. And so Josiah instructed Hilkiah, the father of Jeremiah, to take the money. You don't have to keep a record of how you spend it. I want you to go and I want you to renew and establish the temple and its worship. As they are doing the restoration work, someone in the house of God stumbled upon the Word of God. The Scriptures had been lost 
in the house of the Lord. They brought it to the king, and he said, have somebody read it. Now have somebody interpret for us what that means. And the king tore his garments, and he called for a national repentance and a revival. And they wept over how they had failed their God. Now, Jeremiah's ministry was to the rebellious people of Israel. He continued to remind them that God loved them way too much to let them continue going on their rebellious, destructive way. That his love for them required that he spank them severely. But his discipline of them was not his rejection of them. It was a reminder that he cared deeply for them. So he was going to allow Nebuchadnezzar to come all the way across from the Persian Gulf and take them captive, destroy their city, destroy their temple. And then ultimately, in his grace, he would bring them back. Jeremiah's preaching. It's called the weeping prophet. He continues to preach that message. And the people continued to give him the Heisman. Nobody was listening. Other pastors came along, other preachers came along, and they said, oh, Jeremiah's crazy. You know, he's just gotten old and senile. It's like, it's only going to be two years, and blessing of heaven's going to be poured out again. Jeremiah countered that by saying, no way. You're going to be out of here for 70 years. When you get to the land of your captivity, build yourself houses and start some businesses, because it's going to be seven decades before you return. But the promise is this. You will one day return. His love for you will not abandon you, but it will restore you. And so he gives this in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was a faithful husband to them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I'll be their God. They will be my people. No longer will each one teach his neighbor and each brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. Back to the book of Hebrews chapter 8. So the seven outstanding traits of this new covenant is number one, it is written by God. Notice he says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will establish a new covenant. This is not a negotiated contract between God and rebellious man. It is a commitment that God made that depends on himself. The difference between this one and the old one is this one is unconditional. It depends totally on the faithfulness of the God who made it. This afternoon as you're watching uh, football or something, just take time to circle the number of times in the covenant he uses the phrase, I will, I will, I will. This is God's agreement to be faithful in loving sinful man. The second thing about it is that it is a new covenant. It is not a recycled covenant. He's not saying that, you know, the problem with the old one was that the standards were a little high or I was, ex I was a little excessive in my expectations. No, the problem was with the old one is, is that the standards were righteous, but the problem with man is an internal problem, not an external one. Is there's no power, there's no ability to conform to the law. Therefore, in frustration, we turn to one who can save us from ourselves. The third thing that was interesting about it is that it restores the nation 
of Israel. Even though his children have been rebellious against him, or as he says in Jeremiah, I was a faithful groom to you, and you were a faithless bride to me. But he continues to love them, and he's continued to work in them. So notice he says here in verse 8, I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now you remember the story of how when Solomon, this glorious kingdom, when he died, his son became the king in his place. And his father had been heavy on the people in the taxation when he lived a very luxurious life. And so his son went to his father's cabinet advisors and he said, should we continue the tax level that my father imposed upon the people? And his father's advisors said, no, I think your dad was a little heavy handed. I think I would roll it back a little bit. But he didn't like to hear that. So he went to his own peers, which is the danger of taking your advice from your peers when you're young. And that was, they went to his peers and they said, are you kidding? These people could pay far more than your father ever extracted from them. So he raised the tax load on their back and it split the nation. The northern ten tribes are called Israel. The southern two tribes are called Judah. In 722 BC, because northern ten tribes were habitually worshiping gods, idols, and rejecting the true and living God, considering him as worthless in comparison to lifeless stone, God allowed the Assyrians to come down and literally annihilate them, to scatter them. 150 years later, 586 BC, right before Jeremiah, right after Jeremiah begins preaching, God called for Nebuchadnezzar to come 600 miles over from the Persian Gulf and to take over the nation of Judah. It was a divided nation, and God is promising that the new covenant would bring the nation back together again. Verse 9, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, that they did not continue in my covenant. The problem with the covenant was not on God's side, it was on man's side. They were disobedient. They could not perform or live up to it. So I showed no concern for them. Now this is the covenant that I will make. Notice he unites them again as one nation. I will make with the house of Israel after those days. This is the promise. God loves us too much to let us continue to go in our wayward ways. He will always demonstrate his love. We'll talk about that when we get to Hebrews chapter 12. He will always demonstrate his love for us in the way that he corrects us when we were out of line. Just to pause. If you find yourself living in a state of rebellion to God and things are going just fine for you, there's only two things that you can consider. One, your profession of faith in Jesus might just be external. It just might be intellectual. You're not really his child. That's a possibility. He doesn't discipline the neighbor's kids. He only disciplines his own. Or the second one is, hang on. Hard times are coming. That's the story of Jeremiah. He loved them too much to let them continue in their rebellion. And he loved them too much to disown them. But he would spank them and correct them. And so he restores the nation and then he converts it from an external law to an internal. In those days, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And now the conviction and direction of life is no longer going to be the, the Ten Commandments on stone, but instead it's going to be the Spirit of God speaking in the heart. Jeremiah, or I'm sorry, Exodus 31:18 said, He gave to Moses when he had finished speaking on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger 
of God. This is what it looks like to be the children of God. But they failed repeatedly. But there was always this glimmer of hope. Even David in Psalm 40, he said, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. There were some who understood that they were impotent to fulfill God's demand unless, of course, God changed them on the inside to the out. Ezekiel chapter 11 promises, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh. I will give them a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Be careful to obey my rules. For the first time under the new covenant, obeying the commands of God becomes a possibility. Not because it's in the strength of the flesh, but it's in the strength of the indwelling spirit. John chapter 14, verse 17. I'll ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him or knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you, and He will be in you. Suddenly, the new covenant takes what was on the outside impossible, and it writes it on the inside and makes it doable because of the power and the presence of the Spirit of God. And it's based, number five, on relationships, not based on rules. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they will no longer teach each other, his neighbor or his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the greatest to the least. Just like a child knows his father, so the children of God know their heavenly father. Jesus in his High priestly prayer in John 17, verse 3 said, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Again, the theme that laces Hebrews together is that God has worked in such a way that we can draw near to God. That's the emphasis that he makes. Knowing God means without fear, I can come into his holy presence because Jesus paved the way. And sixth, it is personal. It's not just simply corporate, national, but it's now personal. The Spirit becomes the personal tutor of the Word. He will teach us. We don't need to be teaching one another. You said, he said in, in uh, Isaiah, all your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Or in John 14, 26, he said, but the Helper, the Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. You see, you have the ability to read this book for yourself and understand what it says because the author of the book lives within you. And his ministry is to enlighten it for you, to help you understand. It's difficult work. Most of us don't read the Bible simply because it's too much work. Or as he said in Hebrews chapter 5, the reason I can't talk to you about these things because you become lazy. 1 John chapter 2, verse 26, I write these to you about those who are trying to deceive you. The anointing that you receive from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But his anointing teaches you about everything and it's true. It's not a lie. Just as it is taught you, abide in him. 
The Spirit of God wants you to know the Father. And in order to know the Father, He has given you a book about Him. And He wants you to read it. He doesn't want you to lose it in your home or lose it in your church. He wants you to personally read it. And He, the author of it, will explain it to you. He will caution you against the things that will destroy your life. He'll affirm for you the things that are pleasing to your Father. But the amazing one is the last line. The nation of Israel over and over, for all of his ministry, Isaiah kept calling them back to the Lord and they stiff-armed him. They gave him the Heisman repeatedly. Along comes Jeremiah and he's calling them to repentance and back to the Lord. And God says, I love you too much to let you go this way. I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to send you away for 70 years. It's going to be painful, but I'm going to welcome you home. And he can do that because he says in verse 12, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and remember their sins no more. He will grant us full and complete forgiveness. The old covenant was a covenant that was conditional. If you do, then I will. The new covenant is unconditional. God said, for you, I will. Can't help but think in terms of Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west. That's how far he removes our transgressions from us. Or the book of Micah chapter 7. I love Micah 7. He says, I will take your sins and I will grind them under my foot. Back in the day when people did more smoking in public, you would right before you would go into the Swede cafe, they would, you know, they would throw their thing on the ground and then they would grind it out, and then the wind would come along and just kind of blow it in the gutters of Gothenburg Main Street or something like that. That's what he's talking about. He's going to take your sins. He's going to grind it under his foot. Then he's going to pick them up and he's going to scatter them on the waves of the sea, never to bring them back again. We're in Isaiah 38. I love Isaiah 38. All of my sins he has taken and he has cast them behind his back to remember them no more. The amazing thing about the new covenant is there is full and complete forgiveness for every sin of the past and the present and the future. Because a one-time sacrifice was made the shed blood of Jesus. And because he's continuing to serve as an active priest in the presence of the Father, receiving our expressions of adoration and dedication, gratitude, and delight. So Job again, how can a man be right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him since once in a thousand times, for he's not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. The truth of Hebrews is you don't want to represent yourself in the courtroom of the righteous judge. But according to 1 John chapter 3, we have a lawyer, an advocate, seated at the Father's right hand. So when the indictment against you is read on the left, the justification and declaration of acquittal is read by him on the right. Stephen 
absorbed the executioner's stones. It, it crushed his body, but it couldn't crush his spirit. And right before he died, he looked up, he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. Our high priest is seated because the sacrificial work is complete. But he is standing in order to receive our gifts of worship and praise. And when you come into a season of trial and crisis, he is the same one who walked in the fire with the friends of Daniel. He's the same one who came to the floundering disciples when they are tossed in the storm of the sea. He's the same one who stood to welcome Stephen, the first church martyr, home. And he will come to meet you in your moment of need, wherever you are. So the answer to Hebrews chapter 8, the reason he writes it to the floundering church in Rome is simply this, never give up and never give in. Or as Jesus said in Revelation 3, to he who overcomes, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne.